Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. My name is Regina Mercera. I left Cuba when I was about three. I came to the United States in 1962. I went to school here. I've lived here most of my life. Stayed on the west side, around 20th and Magnolia. Ended up going to the east side. And then when I got grown, I've lived in a couple of places. Hancock Park. I've lived out in Hollywood. Lived in prison. My early childhood was spent traveling. My father was a musician, so I remember most of that vividly. Uh, good times. We traveled. I lived in Mexico for two years. We traveled all of Texas. My father uh, was a band leader. He had his own band, Latin jazz. He played the saxophone, the clarinet, and the piano. And that took a lot of time. It was a 21-piece orchestra, if I remember correctly. I remember his clothes because he liked to dress. Most of his stuff was tailor-made, including the shoes. He died a while ago. Before that, he went to Mexico after we came out here. And he got caught up in his life there. He never came back. I kind of put him out of my mind. I did not appreciate what he did to my mother. You know, they have, she has like five kids and he left her with them. I don't think he intended to do that, but he got caught up in his own limelight. My name is Tania Brown. Um, I am from South Central LA. Grew up on 41st and Hoover. I don't describe my neighborhood like really bad because the street that we stayed on was like quite quiet and stuff. And um, my grandma always kept us inside the house. We were porch kids. I've seen other kids play, um, hearing about basically like their childhood, going to the pool, going to amusement parks and stuff. That's something that I, like I, I always wanted to do. We couldn't leave the porch. My mom was on drugs down the street. We weren't allowed to see our mom. We used to sneak and see our mom. Um, my grandmother, she was very strict. Like we had to ask to go in the freezer or the refrigerator. She'll lock the freezer. We didn't have a close relationship. She didn't let us play with the other kids. I was raised with four other of my siblings, but we weren't allowed to talk to each other, interact with each other, or sit at the same table like during dinner and breakfast. It was mostly about, cause she got a check for us. My grandmother never showed me affection. She never let, allowed me to have friends. If I had friends, I had to sneak. Basically I had my own secret life because if my grandma interfered, or if I bring a friend home, she'll wanna talk to your parents and tell them everything bad. So your parents would just be like, don't be around Tania. I didn't consider myself a bad kid. I just, we weren't able to go outside. So I used to ditch school but use my school time to like go play outside with other kids. 
Or I used to lie and say we have Saturday school so I could go play. I moved in with my grandmother at eight, so it mostly happened when I first moved in until I got arrested. I used to watch a lot of, I guess, gangster movies. I used to be impressed by them being able to do whatever they wanted, how they dressed, how they could be so callous. And it wasn't the callous that attracted me, it was the control of the emotions. And I think I started modeling myself after that. Uh, then the fact that my father left like that, I think it had a lot to do with it too where I basically shut down, but I didn't know that's what I was doing. I started replacing emotions with material things. And the more I replace, the less I felt. I had no idea that that's what I was doing, but that's what it was. Thinking back or while I was locked up and I started thinking about all of that, I realized uh, I was not a very nice person. I could be when I wanted to be, but it was usually for some reason. It was very manipulative. And like I said, I was self-centered. Everything was me, me, me. That might've had a lot to do with me being the oldest and having to help my mother with, with the kids. So when I was younger, it was never about me. Before I went to prison, some of my legal activities sort of made me a lot of money. So I was hung up on, on, on like I said, material things. I was the oldest, so I had a lot of responsibility and I would get away with a lot. So I liked discipline. And I think that that had a lot to do with who and what I became after I got older. You know, it, it made me not fear consequences. It made me do pretty much what I wanted to. I ended up being very materialistic. And the more materialistic I got, the less I felt. I ended up being the tin man, for the lack of a better word. I like nice things. Although I've never really gotten arrested for that illegal activity, my problem has always been someone wants to try me. They do a little, I do a lot, and I land in jail. Until this last time. This last time was pretty much an accident, something I didn't mean to happen, nor did I want to happen, and it just got out of control. Someone died, and I ended up doing 24 and a half years for that. What led to my incarceration is um, I went to a foster home. And um, my foster sister used to try to like bully me. She wasn't in the system, like my foster mom was her biological mom. So she felt like she was privileged to more things than what I was. And I just felt like that I went through so much in my life, I didn't want to go through it no more. One day she just triggered me, um, like was just calling me dumb, stupid, and tried to pick on me. And um, I had called my friends and we had um, beat my foster children back in the crowbar until she was unconscious. We went on a run and my, my co-defendant had turned herself in and me and my other co-defendant was just staying from 
pillow to post or wear a personal that's in their house. Then my grandmother found out where we was at. She called the police and the police came to pick us up. Um, I was 14 at the time. I got incarcerated at the age of 14. I felt like my grandma couldn't interfere in my life no more. My victim was related and he was very abusive with stimuli. He was an alcoholic. Anything that would come his way, he would take. Uh, he would be on alcohol, on PCP, on rock cocaine, on pills, all of this at the same time. And he would become abusive. Everybody had a turn and I guess it was my turn. I picked up a gun trying to keep him at bay and he socked me, actually cold cocked me, knocked me down when I fell. I squeezed the trigger. He shot him in the abdomen. They took him to the hospital and they were able to patch him up. However, the abuse of drugs and alcohol had severely damaged his organs and they weren't up to the fight, so one by one, they kept going down. They get one functioning again, and another one would go down until they just couldn't save them. I was convicted of an involuntary manslaughter, but because of the three strikes, I was given 54 to life. Well, you know, you have to go to the per the process of being tried as an adult and being a juvenile. So I thought that I was going to try as a juvenile and just go to camp. Well, that's what they kept telling me. And then um, when they tried me as an adult, I got sentenced to 16 years with 85% and to prison. But I couldn't go to prison until I was 18. So I was scared because, you know, all the stories you hear about prison and YA and I've never been in trouble before. It's my first time in trouble. So you just go by with the stories you hear. So then when I got sentenced, you know, I think I was kind of like hoping my grandma would like have sympathy for me. I understand that I committed my crime, but like I think a part of her had a part of effect of me. I wanted to be accepted always by her, but it never was. You know, my intention was only to keep him at bay. Oh, he'll see this gun and he won't come nowhere near me. And I was wrong. I felt like he punched me and knocked me down and it started the chain of events. It took me a long time to really grasp the reality of the whole situation and my part. I was really shocked because like I said, I've done other things and this was an accident and this is the one that really laid me down. At the same time, he died. So I had a lot of mixed feelings on that, you know, with retribution. I'm still alive, the family. I can't pinpoint one emotion because so much was going on. And disbelief, I think, would be the biggest one. I remember my sister, I could hear her crying when they announced my sentence. 
Uh, my other sister just got up and walked out of the courtroom. So there was a lot going on. As far as any fear or anxiety, I still hadn't processed the time. It took me a minute to really get used to what was going on because for a long time, I didn't really think I did anything. So on my 18th birthday, um, they shipped me to CIWAR. So I didn't actually hit the main line. Um, we go through the reception process, but I was just scared because like I said, the stories you heard, they, um, they all asked me like my name. I try to play crazy so people could leave me alone, like talk to myself. But eventually I just think I just got adjusted to it. I think I got more adjusted to prison when I went to start my, when I got off reception, went to Mainline, which I got shipped to Chachilla. Once I started programming, I got adjusted to it a little bit, then I got it straight away into the other life. It's like a certain life you have to live in prison, where it's a choice. Either you want to go the good route or you want to go the bad route, and I chose both. When I first got there, I felt like if I had to do good program, and um, just be everything I get, like whatever I want, but it didn't happen like that. So when I start fighting, getting into drugs, going to asset back and forth and living the life, my name start being, hey, Brown, why are you outside? They leave me alone. When you do good in there, it's like you're hardly um, acknowledged. But when I went back and start just living the, what most people expect you to live in prison, um, Basically, I just got a name for myself. I went to CCWF, which is a California, the California Institute for Women in Chowchilla. I remember my first night I was in receiving and I had never been in this prison before and it was, it was overwhelming, it was unbelievable. You know, when you first get to prison, you are like in a two-man cell. You're very restricted on your activity. You're very limited on your possessions. And I'm still in disbelief. Fortunately, I knew a few people, so it wasn't quite that bad. I remember one night I got a chrono that gave me my estimated release date and reality set in a little because it was like 1997 and it said that my release date was in 2047. So that seemed astronomical. And I was like, I'm not gonna live that long. So a lot of reality set in when I picked up that paper and read it. I had become very isolated. It was like I didn't want to be bothered with anyone. I was trying to process things. There was a lot of things that confused me at that time. When I went to certain people's rooms, it was kind of um, bad because it's like you have some people that's been there longer than you that chose to be bullies or try to test you. If you're going to a good room, it's like you have a choice to either get caught up with the scenery that goes on in the prison.
food in prison isn't really bad. It's what they do to it. It was very repetitive, you know. Mondays, they're gonna probably have this or that. It's one of the two. So every day had a pretty much set menu. It changed up every now and then. Sometimes they would get new things. Sometimes on holidays, they would change it up. But for the most part, it's pretty much the same thing on holidays as well. The food changed drastically from beginning to end. You had a lot of people that would complain about this, complain about that, religious groups. And the more they change it, the more pre-made and the more crappy it got. Fortunately, I, I had people out there, so I was able to kind of buy my own things. And they would give us name brand things, and of course at a discount. And slowly but surely, they kept changing everything to generics. Every Tuesday was hamburgers. Every Wednesday was chicken. Then they took the bone from chicken and we ended up eating chicken breasts. The cabbage and stuff was nasty. So if you didn't shop, that's what you got stuck with. But if you got canteens, you got to cook um, food. When I was in prison, I got um, I got into the drug life. I worked central kitchen, so I stilled um, bell peppers and vegetables. I worked in the kitchen and still food. My friend that got out of prison, she used to send me a lot of money, and I used to spend it all on drugs. I used to spend over like five or six hundred on drugs a week. It kind of gave me like just away from everything I felt. It just made me gave, like felt good for a moment. To my knowledge, I believe I was the first woman to go actually go to the board and be found suitable. A lot of the women that were released before me on three strikes were released due to law changes. I was released July 3rd, 2019. I feel like giving up. I was a point to where I, I messed up so much in prison that um, even if I try to get milestones, my date never changed. So then when they tell me, okay, you can do this and you get 90 days off, it just never changed. So when I finally, when I finally got closer to my release date, I felt like anxiety because I didn't know what to expect. I hardly had contact with the outside world. The day before I found out I was going home, I couldn't sleep. I was anxious and nervous because I didn't know what to expect or what I was getting into because I've been adjusted to this place for so many years and then to get out just to go to another freedom, it just felt weird. The day of my release, a friend of mine, whom I, I met in the county when I, we were both fighting our case, um, she also got 25 to life, but hers was overturned. Uh, it was nonviolent. She got out, we stayed in touch, and she wanted to pick me up, and she did. My first day out, I actually did better than I thought, but <laughs> we stopped at a McDonald's, no, I don't know, one of those fast food places. And I told her I had to use the bathroom and I was in there for a long time. And she came to see if I was okay. 
And I was like, I, I don't know how to flush the toilet. And she had told me to just step away from it. The same thing with the sinks. You just put your hand under it and the water runs out. All of that didn't exist when I went away. Uh, she handed me an iPhone. And of course, nobody called me for a day or two till they found out I was out and I can give them my number. But when the phone rang, I didn't even know how to answer it. I locked it within the first 30 days and had to have it factory reset. I made a lot of challenges, especially electronically. The prices were like ridiculous. Even though the prices would go up in prison, they were nothing in comparison to the prices out here. I went away and Twinkies were like, 89 cents, I come out and they're almost $3. So because I didn't see the gradual change, it was like a slap in the face. It's one big leap. When I walked out the gates, I felt re relieved, but nervous at the same time. The first day I got out, I was kind of scared and I did look back because I was kind of scared to face my own reality of that I'm free. I didn't know nothing about the county. I didn't know nothing about um, ID. I didn't know my social. I didn't know what a social security card was. I didn't know nothing. It took me four months to just get an identity. When I got out of prison, um, I lived with my godmother, but it didn't work out. So I ended up moving with my boyfriend downtown and he had his own place. So whenever he'll get mad, he'll just kick me out 10 o'clock. We sit on 7th and Stanford, Skiro. So whenever he just get mad at me or whatever, he just kick me out 10 o'clock at night. So now I'm just on the streets. Now as a woman, I was scared. Because of course the things that you hear and the things you see people go through, but I just told myself, okay, morning is like five hours. It will be okay, okay. So I stayed high to stay up all night so I could be okay. So by from six o'clock to two o'clock, my mind is a little bit at ease because I'm at work and I'm around people. By two o'clock PM, I'm stressed out because I don't know where I'm gonna lay my head at. It depends on how my boyfriend felt at the time. While in prison, I got myself clean um, six months before my release date because I told myself I didn't want to go home like that. I was too strung out. When I fell backwards when I got out was on Skid Row, but then I seen um, friends that I was incarcerated with, friends I grew up with that was lost down there. And I was still trying to just uphold an image and try to hide behind my addiction. When I found out I was pregnant, I just told myself, no, like I didn't want to lose my child and I was happy because I felt like a child will love you like no matter what, no matter what you go through, like um, a bond with your children is the best. And I felt like the love that I always wanted, I'll get it from my kids. So I didn't want to do anything to lose from my kid. I'm trying to save money because I want to put her into a private school. I educate her now, like I read her books. I talk to her daily. I don't baby talk her. And then for my son, I really don't want him to be um, a mama's boy. And then I don't want to keep him too sheltered because I don't want them to be naive to the world. My auntie strayed away because they feel like that um, I'm still the same 14 year old girl that got arrested. So um, I just built my own family and I just accept it for what it is. When I first got out, I got in contact with um, old friends. They taught me how to use um, a cell phone. Um, they taught me how to um, build credit up. Um, with housing, it was a big issue, but I experienced homelessness. I stayed on Skid Row for about a good six months. 
before um, I just said this is not what I want for my life. I slowly felt myself slipping. So I, t I promise you, I told myself, I said, this, this can't be me. I didn't, I didn't come this far just to just stop here. And this is where, no. I found a job um, downtown at CEO uh, with Caltrans. Then um, I started working at a nonprofit organization at the Community Coalition. Um, I eventually got housing. I had a baby. That was another challenging because I never been raised around babies or kids per se. And then I did it on my own for the first six months. So it was a bit overwhelming. I tried to take my experiences to my daughter just to be better. Like I love my mom, I don't hate my mom, I don't worry, but I just know like she struggled a lot. I never want my daughter to feel like, dang, if my mom was here. Because I know what it's like not to have a mom. And I know what it's like to want a mom. I know what it's like just to have an absence of a mother. So I try my hardest to be interactive with my daughter to where she knows me, just not just about me. My best days have been my niece and my sister took me to Disneyland for my birthday the first year I was out. That's it. And I covered it again. <laughs> Look at your hair. I know. <laughs> I had a good time. Um, the second year, Labor Day, fell on my birthday. So I cooked and invited everybody over. Ended up having a ball, friends and family. Uh, understand that when I went away, I was pretty cold, I was pretty distant, I bought things. And that's how I showed that you meant anything. I came out a different person, more human. So I started doing a lot of little things that I normally didn't. I started spending time and appreciating my family. My uh, priorities had changed. So a lot of things were new to me at least the experience was. And, and my family really, really happy about the change. Uh, they've been very supportive. I was materialistic and, and my priorities were changed. I ended up caring more about the things than people. I didn't really think about the people. I would give gifts and sometimes they weren't received well. <laughs> because of who I was, and I didn't understand that. Your birthday, I planned the party, but I was too busy to come. I paid for everything. Happy birthday, I'll see you later. Or I'd send the nicest gift, maybe drop it off. I could talk you off a ledge over the phone, but if you started crying, I didn't know what to do. Who I was as a child, I didn't have feelings. I didn't have a conscience. Like, I didn't care what I did, because I know that like, no matter everything I did to everybody else's was wrong. So I didn't have a care in the world. Now, who I am is um, I learned from my mistakes. I learned that I'm very open-minded. I feel like if I never went through the experiences that I went through, I wouldn't be who I am. I know that I'm strong. I know that I survived many things that people probably couldn't even think of to survive.
felt like my life was me getting out didn't get better, but I felt like I had to do my own reality check. Like I, I made it, I'm here. And this is where I'm at today. I got my own place. I got my own car. Um, I, I work. I'm planning on moving to a bigger spot. I'm trying to make wiser choices because I know that um, I still have bad um, patience. So I'm, I'm working on myself with that alone without being told. And I'm, I think I'm a damn good mother to my child. With my first baby, um, she didn't move a lot in my stomach. With this baby, yes. This baby moves all day, every day, and I'm always tired and hungry. <laughs> I wanted to name him something from, the, something from the Bible, Isaiah. I wanted to name him Isaiah. I think I just live for the moment, for the moment. And I just tell myself like, it'll get better. Or if I get overwhelmed, um, I just tell myself, okay, Tina, you just gotta do it. You know, everybody go through something. But if I put my mind to something, if I don't get it, I get discouraged. So that's why I just live just for the moment. Like I know that tomorrow I have to go to work, get up. I know that if there's something, if I wanted to be like a lead somewhere, I know that I have to work harder than what I do. So like I moved up into my job and I was proud of myself. And that was just me just going with the flow. Because I know that if it's an expectation that has to be there through somebody else, I will have that too much on my mind and I will just lose focus. And it sounds crazy, but it's true. Tania is my mom's second cousin and makes her my third cousin. Growing up with her, she was incarcerated for a long time, so I never really grew up around her. But I remember we both were young, so she had struggles before she went to jail and did whatever. But around that time, she went to jail, she never got out. Well, she went to jail at a young age. We was all in my grandma's house. I don't know about her incident because I wasn't around that, but she changed. She's a whole different woman. She changed a whole lot. She's fine today. She struggled on her time of getting out of prison with housing and employment, but she's fine. She's stable. She had a baby. She on her way, her second baby. She's, she's okay. She still got some problems just with employment, but she's stable. She's doing okay. She will never be that way again. She's somebody's mom now. That is never gonna happen again. She got family she, that she didn't have back then. Keep pushing forward and I got you. Her mom was on drugs, so like we all had to go to my grandma's. <laughs> she got more help now, she changed. I don't like to talk about people's situations and what my family members go through. You still need a little bit of help, but she's fine. My best days of being home was my achievements and me getting my place. When I got my car for the first time, um, me keeping my job, and then me going back and telling what everybody thought I wasn't gonna be. Everybody thought I was gonna be what I was when I got out was a person on skid row and drugs because of my mother's background. So they looked at me like a black sheep and I overcame something they thought I'll never overcome especially being gone for so long. Like you would think somebody would just come like 14 years old. I didn't know nothing about adults, being an adult really. I still live prison just mentally as a 14 year old because only you told is go to program, go to sleep, wake up and make sure you program again tomorrow. They don't teach you how to live life out here as an adult. So for, for me to be where I'm at and standing where I'm at, I'm proud of myself for my achievements. There's more humanity. I'm more humble now. 
I didn't think to hug you or to tell you I love you or anything like that. And now I make it a point to do that. I make it a point to listen. I make it a point to let you know that I care. And I try to help out whenever I can. I'm very humble now in comparison to the person that I was. I was very arrogant and self-centered. Though this wasn't done on purpose, people didn't matter much to me. Not in a way where I don't care about you, in a way that I didn't think that far. I was just caught up in what I was doing, where I wanted to go, how I wanted to dress, etc. I put other people before me now. I've even joined groups to where I can cry for the stranger before you were just a face. It didn't even catch my attention. I didn't know you, I just kept going. I don't have a problem stopping and, and, and buying in a homeless person some food even though I don't know them. I did before, but it was more like give them $10 and, and you know, not even look at them. So I've changed a lot, a lot. My family comments on how I've changed. Uh, and we've come, become closer. I'm author Barbie Amor from Los Angeles, California. My aunt is Regina Merceron. She haven't gone since I was young, but before she left, it was cool. Like she, she was the aunt that bought me everything, everything in the world. My mom was very materialistic, very. That's all she like craved was material things. Like even before, like a lot of high end designers that's around now, she was rocking that stuff all the way back then. We have a lot of memories with her because we lived in the same house. I grew up in the same house with her, with my grandmother. My family was crazy, so I got some crazy memories with her. My memories of crazy for my aunt, it was like this one particular time that I would never forget. Um, like, I don't want to paint her to be this, like, monster. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to paint her to be this monster, but she was crazy. She had set my aunt's room on fire. I went to the um, fire department and told them she needed some gasoline <laughs> and threw the, threw the gas on my aunt's door. They had got into it. Flames, flames. That's all I can really remember. I was young then too. But like, even though they were close, it's crazy because they were close, but they always stayed into it. Like my aunts, they always got into it. My uncle always got into it, my aunts. They would kill for one another. They would kill for one another. Like you couldn't, anybody outside couldn't mess with them. But they went at each other like, like enemies. Like I can remember a lot of it, a lot of fights and like I had this one cool auntie that just like stayed out the way of everything. She was the brains behind the family, but like my mom, even my mom is crazy. But I don't think nobody beats Auntie Regina. That's why I say she is so, I be just looking at her now. Like when we be out places and stores and stuff, people, she is like, people gravitate to her. Like they'll just start talking to her out of nowhere. And I just be like, damn, she is just so humble. And people just don't know, like this is a crazy ass woman right here. 
Like, if they just knew the stuff she's been through, it'd be like, damn. But she's so sweet. She is so sweet. That's how my grandma is. Well, was. My grandma was like that, too. My grandma was sweet as hell, but crazy. She didn't speak no English. She just cussed everybody out in Spanish. That's all she knew how to do was just cussing English. She didn't know a lick of English. So we were all raised talking Spanish. Regina was actually born in Cuba. And my uncle that she um, shot, he was born in Mexico. I remember when she ultimately went to jail, it kind of like broke our family, especially what she went for. She went to jail for killing my uncle, which is her brother. Yeah, it kind of broke our family apart. Like she was the one that did like all the cooking and pretty much just was there. Like she was the one around the house. Like she would go out handle her business, but she was the one always there that like my grandma and them like kind of leaned towards. You know, she was having a little money. So, you know, she was the one that like kept us together. It was just, it was crazy. I was younger, like I said. They had always got into it. Like growing up, they always got into it. My uncle would drink a lot. For some reason, it was crazy because it's like he always picked on her. And um, this particular day, they had got into it earlier that day. It's like they had been like getting into it that whole day. And she ended up leaving, like taking his car or something. And when she got back, they had, uh, he like physically hit her or something, like something like that, you know? I wasn't too far because they were arguing my uncle. My um my aunt, which is her sister, was like trying to hold like all the kids back, but we were standing right there. She meant to like shoot him maybe like in the leg or something, and of course he swung at her, and she ended up hitting him like in the stomach, and he's like, "This bitch shot me," and it just was like crazy. It was got chaotic in there from right there. My grandma was there, like we were all in there. They rushed him to the hospital. I even went to visit him in the hospital. We all went, like my family went to the hospital. When he passed away, I know he was in a coma for a few weeks. I remember going to visit him like maybe a couple days before he passed away. And it was crazy because it was like, he must like could hear us talking because a tear had came out of his eye. My auntie got us out the room. She rushed us out the room, out the hospital room. And then I was at my dad's house when they called and said he had passed away, or they had to pull the plug. If I'm not mistaken, I want to say my grandma had to pull the plug on him. There's not just one person affected. Like I said, too, it affected my whole family. It destroyed my family. Um, there was a lot of grieving already from Regina's son, who had passed away from cancer. And then we already don't have much family because our entire family is in Cuba. So, the little bit of family we do have here in the United States, that like broke us up. My uncle's dead now, my auntie's in jail. Not too long after my grandma ended up passing. So I'm very proud of her. I could see the transition from 25 years ago. Before she went, she was kind of wild. Like she was real chill. Don't get me wrong when I say wild. She was real chill, laid back, but she was just like, this boss, like, <laughs> and um, now she's real humble. Like I be looking at her like, damn. Cause I used to be around her a lot when I was young. So I look at her now and I just be tripping like, damn, she humble as hell now. Cause she was a firecracker. She was a firecracker. Like she, she was, she was crazy. <laughs> I don't get what you said it, but she was crazy as hell. 
I just look at her now, like she's very humble and just trying to adapt, you know? 25 years, they pretty much kicked her out of prison with no ID and $200, like, so she kind of came home to nothing. I know it's hard right now for her because she like, it's hard for her to get employment. She doesn't have an ID and stuff because they won't even give her ID because they considering her an immigrant because she, she's from Cuba. She was actually born in Cuba. But I couldn't say that she's maintaining well. She's doing a hella job at maintaining to like come home to nothing. When I was younger, I used to love to write. I always kept journals, I always kept diaries. I, I just always wrote when I was younger. A lot of people always used to tell me, um, they knew my background, like even from Aunt Regina, my mother, um, she has served time about 10 or 11 years in, in a federal prison. The way I was, my upbringing, a lot of people always told me like, you need to write a book. And one day I just was like, I'ma just write a book about my life. All my books are like who love stories. No matter the killings, no matter the incarcerations, no matter nothing that's going on in my books, like that's bad, it's always a love story. Part of my change was the people around me. You know, I, I was around some very brutal people that everybody hated, you know, to hear somebody died and you're happy. And that made me start thinking, wow, I don't want to be like that. I don't want people to remember just all the bad I did. And it took me on a whole different train of thought. Um, I had to kind of like relive my life in my mind. And I found out, boy, was I wrong about a lot of stuff. One of the things that happened during my incarceration, because 24 and a half years, you have a lot of time to think about everything. And what I learned was how little I knew about me. So once I started studying me, I learned a lot of things and I was able to correct them. I was able to see that my train of thought was not good. And I was able to change it. 